are quite different to each other and sometimes at odds with each other. And a lot of the time we don't realise the way that culture has actually come in and changed Christianity and infected it a little bit. So today, uh, we'll get stuck straight into it. I want to talk about probably, I don't know, probably a defining part of culture. It's probably one of the main things that defines culture for us, which is entertainment. I'll start off by asking a bit of a difficult question. Uh, The question is, why do people do what they do? Why does anybody do anything? It's a pretty big question. It's a pretty loaded question, really. But uh, there was a guy who uh, was alive in the 1600s called Blaise Pascal, and this is what he said about it. All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attending, attended with different views. This is the motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves. It's a bit of a bold statement there, I think, to be saying that. But in reality, if you just pause and have a think about yourself and your own life, you'll realise that there's very few times that you actively go out and do something that you know is going to make you unhappy. And when you do do those sort of things, you probably know that at the end of that unhappiness, there's actually happiness at the end. And that's the reason that you're willing to do it. So really what he's saying is the only reason that anyone ever does anything is because they think it's going to make them happy. It's the main goal that people have. We do the things that we do in a pursuit of happiness. It's the motive or the, of every action that we do. Every person wants to be happy. <clears throat> this is a really important foundation and we're going to come back to it later on. But uh, before we do that, I just want to move over to the parable of the sower. So if you've got your Bible there, uh, you can turn to Luke uh, 8 verse 5. This is a pretty uh, common parable. Lots of people have heard it before. So I'll just read it out. You can, it's up there on the screen. You can read along. A sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. Now, as you probably know, this parable is about the way that different people receive the word of God. And the disciples ask what the parable means, and Jesus continues to explain. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart, so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in a time of testing they fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. The interesting and I think really important thing about this parable for us to realise is that it actually applies to people that hear the word. In reality, probably three of the four groups that are described there are people that could be found in churches all over the place. I think a lot of the time we read parables like this and we assume that's the other people, that's the people outside of the church. But three of the four groups here heard the word and it actually grew a little bit. Okay? Different people had different problems. The seed that fell by the road didn't take root, so most likely they're not churchgoers. But the seed in the rocks does take root, but the roots aren't strong. And in the tough times, they fall away. These are people that have no depth in their understanding of and their relationship with God. And the truth is, we could be these people. We could be these kind of people. 
We may have never had a time of testing. We may be coasting in our Christianity, not trying hard to push through and ensure that we have deep roots so that when hard times do come, we don't get washed away. But the third group is the group that I want to focus on today. The thorns that are described in the parable are explained as the cares, riches and pleasures of life. And it would seem that these are trees that actually grow, they grow up, but they never produce fruit. Fruit's an important metaphor all the way throughout the New Testament. As you probably know, there's many verses that allude to our fruit as Christians, by their fruit they shall be known. Now, if these thorns that surround the seeds are cares, riches and pleasures of life, it could be that currently where we live and the time that we live, this is possibly the most thorn-filled era ever. Never before in the history of the world has there been so much easily accessible pleasure, so much happiness, so much wealth for a lot of us, and it's so easy to get to. And remember, at the end of the day, the happiness is what we want. It's why we do what we do. So let's get back to the culture part. If the main desire of the human heart is to be happy, I think it would follow, therefore, that everything that we do, like Pascal says, is because we believe it will make us happy. Therefore, I think a really important question to ask is, not what makes us happy, but rather, what do we do? Because if we find out what we do, and if we believe that everything we do wants to make us happy, it will tell us subconsciously what we think will make us happy. Does that make sense? Okay, because a lot of the time we don't realise what we're doing, we don't put a lot of thought into it, but when we analyse the things that we do, this has a way of telling us the things that we actually believe at core will make us happy. And the truth is, in our culture right now, we are obsessed with entertainment. Massively obsessed with entertainment. Statistics on the entertainment industry are huge. Now, as always, every time that I go up and talk, I feel like I say this, but I always think it's really important. It's important that we don't become a really self-centred generation or era, and that it's important that we don't forget about what has come before us. The truth is, what I'm about to talk about has only existed at the most for about 100 years. Some of these entertainments are only decades old or even less than that. Entertainment has existed for as long as humanity. However, the industry as it stands now is vastly different to what's been possible for 99.6... I did the maths based around a 7,000-year history. 99.6% of the history of the world. The entertainment industry in the States, including TV, movies, video games, is worth around $726 billion dollars. And that's just America alone. China is rapidly catching up with a value of around $425 billion. And India actually makes the most films, many more films than Hollywood. People spend a lot of money on entertainment. Another form of entertainment, which, uh, that's something which people do because it makes them happy, or they think it's going to make them happy, is pornography. These stats are a little old, and they grow massively every year, so one can imagine what they are now. But in 2006, over $97 billion was spent on porn. And every second of every day, there are over 28,000 people looking at porn online. People are spending a lot of time and a lot of money on entertainment. <clears throat> but it's not just the amount of money that we spend on entertainment which demonstrates our obsession with it. It's also the amount of time. The Nielsen Online uh, Internet and Technology Report surveyed more than 2,000 Australians and found that the average Aussie spent 89.2 hours a week consuming media last year, or almost 80% of their waking hours. This was, I was surprised, and I, and I teach media, and I still was really surprised by this. Uh, 80% of your, if you're an average Aussie, of your waking hours is spent consuming media. The survey found that people are aged over 16, 
spend an average of 16.1 hours on the internet each week, 12.9 hours watching TV, 8.8 hours uh, listening to the radio, 3.7 hours on a mobile phone and 2.8 hours reading newspapers. And often for the young people, that's happening all at the same time somehow. Now, it's hard to know precisely, but I wouldn't be surprised if this obsession with entertainment and the massive amount of time spent focusing on entertainment is actually kind of affecting us in a pretty negative way. Because it's really difficult to stay away from it. After all, you know, we hear in the Bible a lot about being called to be in the world but not of the world. We're not meant to shirk away from this entertainment and go and run away and live in a commune somewhere and be ineffective. But when we do live in the world, it's very, it's very important and it's quite difficult to try to avoid this uh, influence that it can have on us. One thing that I think is really obvious is that this entertainment obsession has totally infiltrated the church. From my experience in churches, it's almost as if there's a burden that churches feel to be entertaining. Like if I don't make any jokes today and you leave and you're like, oh, well, it wasn't very funny today, what does that mean? You know, do I have a job to be entertaining? Well, maybe I do, but we'll talk about it in a bit. We'll see. We can see really this whole entertainment burden in the, the, the rise of the modern megachurch. Please don't hear me. I'm not saying anything negative about these churches. I'm probably saying more negative stuff about the fact that society needs these churches to exist because we need to be entertained so much that if we just went to a church and someone was reading the Bible, which is God's word, it wouldn't be enough for us. We'd have to leave. We'd have to have something else. I don't think that what they're doing is wrong. The truth is they're appealing to a market which is obsessed with entertainment. This guy, Neil Gabler, he says, Evangelical Protestantism, which began as a kind of spiritual entertainment in the 19th century, only refined its techniques in the 20th, especially after the advent of television. Televangelists like Oral Roberts and Jimmy Swaggart recast the old revival meeting as a television variety show, and Pat Robertson's 700 Club was modelled after The Tonight Show. Only the guests on this show weren't, talking, uh, weren't pitching a new movie or album, they were pitching Salvation. Christianity on television, by necessity, has always been presented in the form of entertainment because it's up against other entertaining shows. That's its competition. Theology, rituals, sacred worship, prayer, and most other true components of the Christian faith simply do not play well on television. The other big part of church uh, that this entertainment obsession has affected is church music. We can see this by looking at the really successful music focus that Hillsong has. An interesting study was done a very uh, scholarly study was done on young adult culture in Hillsong a few years ago. This guy, uh, Tyson, said, according to Tyson, Hillsong taps into this hyper-modern youth spirituality. You need big money and high-quality performance talent to do this sort of church. The church focuses on its worship, mainly through the use of music, even during prayers, which appeals to young people. According to Connell, the mega-churches bring in the youth because they are specifically targeted to meet the needs of the young, Younger people, unattached to more established religions, are more mobile and attracted to megachurches that better meet their needs through op options such as youth groups, lively music, smaller prayer groups and interactive services. When I was doing a, some research for this, I was finding stuff all over because, unfortunately, there are a lot of people that go out of their way to really beat up on all this sort of stuff. And like I said, I think that in some ways this stuff is really necessary. There's a generation of people out there that have been swamped by entertainment their entire life, and this might just be the only thing that's going to get through to them. I did hear this, I did find this essay by this guy, uh, Reverend Dale Kuiper. He wrote an essay on the topic, um, which I found online, and 
sometimes he went way too far. Uh, it was probably really, really extreme sort of right wing. He actually said that 99% of all professional athletes in America were under a curse of God and uh, acting is a sin. So probably a little bit far for me as a, as a drama teacher. I don't really think that. Um, but he did have what I think are some really good points. We ought to be aware that the entertainment craze is having its effect in the worship services of many churches. Church members are viewed as consumers and you have to give the consumer what he wants. What he wants is to be entertained. God must be presented as a consumer-friendly God. Do not talk about his holiness, his wrath and his justice. Talk exclusively of his love. Present God as a nice old man who is always there to help you and make you happy. Much of today's worship is oriented to the idea of entertainment. The people must have a jolly good time or they will, be leaving, they will leave the church and go to one that has a better band, a funnier preacher, a bigger stage and more brilliant lighting effects. Obviously, you guys come here, so you don't care about any of that stuff. Edward Farley, writing in Christianity Today, comments that contemporary worship creates a tone that is casual, comfortable, chatty, busy, humorous, pleasant, and at times even cute. He goes on to say that if the seraphim would adopt this Sunday morning mood, they would be addressing God not as holy, 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 but as nice, nice, nice. As weird as some of the other stuff that he said is, I think that that is a really good point. So why is it that we're obsessed with entertainment? Well, for some reason, I think that we're really, really scared of being bored. I can see, you know, I'm a teacher and I see kids walking around at school and they just, you know, oh, what's going on? Oh, I'm just bored. I'm just really bored. I'm just walking around bored. I've got nothing to do. Boredom, though, is actually a really new thing. It hasn't been around for that long. Like I, uh, like I said before, this is why it's important to have a historical perspective on stuff. Only the last hundred years has entertainment existed the way that it does now. The sit down at home by yourself, watch a TV, consume entertainment that we enjoy now never existed before. If you wanted a similar kind of entertainment back then, you had to go to a show, assuming that you lived somewhere close by that had like a theatre or somewhere you could go and see a concert or something. And anyway, it would seem to me that back in the day, even though I didn't obviously live back then, so I don't know for sure, but you almost couldn't have the time to be bored. You were too busy trying to stay alive. <laughs> was boredom possible before we had supermarkets or cars or takeaway, when we had to grow our own food, repair our carriages and train our horses? Perhaps the mere business of survival proved entertaining enough. And there's certainly something lacking in entertainment. It's frivolous. It's temporary. It doesn't offer a sense of accomplishment that came with working to survive. Now, activities that were once considered entertaining necessities, such as gardening or woodworking or reading or talking or cooking, they're considered by some to be boring work because we don't have to do it anymore. So what do we do? We sit at home on a couch, we watch TV of someone else cooking a meal and we order someone else to cook us a meal. How weird is it? Why do we like watching stuff that we don't want to do ourselves? Kids play computer games where they go outside and play around. <laughs> they go outside and play around. Like the Sims has got to be the weirdest computer game in the world. You've got to feed yourself in a game. I know people love the Sims because you feed them heaps and they get really fat and then you starve them and they get really skinny. It's just like real life, except you don't have to do it. <laughs> Funny thing is, if you play the Sims, you get really fat. But as G.K. Chesterton said about boredom, I read this out a couple of weeks ago, 
There's no such thing as a boring topic, only a bored person. Eric Hoffer put it this way, when people are bored, it is primarily with their own selves that they are bored. Like I said, the truth is that boredom is a really new concept. In fact, the first recorded usage of the word was in 1852, only 170 years ago. That should set us to think a little bit, I think. Now, we've all complained of being bored before. Kids complain of being bored all the time. But 150 years ago, the word didn't even exist. And I find it hard to believe that they were sitting around saying, oh, I feel something. I feel just like a, I don't know, there's no word for it. I need someone to come up with a word. And they had to wait for Dickens to be born before anyone knew what the word was. The truth is, it just didn't exist. If you were a kid, you were working. Now, you could play when you weren't working, but none of it was boring. The more we have to do, the more bored we get. The famous atheist Bertrand Russell said this about boredom. Boredom is a vital problem for the moralist, since at least half of the sins of mankind are caused by the fear of it. Even though he's an atheist, it's a really good point. <laughs> things that we do, the things that we excuse because we don't want to be bored, it's a vital truth for us. It's the hatred of boredom that often is the initial cause of some of our sin. I know for a fact in my own life that when I'm busy, industrious, setting my mind and body to a task, there's much less chance for me to find myself in sin because I just don't have the time. You know, I'm somebody when he talks to the guys here at school, a lot of the time he says a ute drives a lot straighter when it's got a load. Okay, when it's doing something, it gets the job done a lot easier. I found this really interesting discussion of boredom online, which is what some modern psychologists would say about it. The labelling of a huge part of human experience as boring is relatively new. The concept of boredom, a sense of emptiness and lack of stimulation, didn't even exist until the 19th century. Now, it is a state of being that is a fate worse than death. Psychologists say that the problem we think is out there in the book, the movie, the job, the relationship, the sermon, is actually in us. Yeah, now you can't be bored because it's your fault if you are. <laughs> Boredom, they say, is created by an inability to delay gratification and a low tolerance for frustration, both of which have serious implications for our success in life and in love. Anytime we proclaim something boring, what we are really saying is we don't have the patience for it. That's good. You can tell your kids that from now on when they complain about something. Rather than looking at ourselves for the source of the problem and therefore the solution, we look at whatever is provoking the feeling and we label that the problem. Just like a lot of things in life, the problem's not really the problem. Most of the time, we're the problem. So now we arrive at a time where boredom is the greatest sin. In fact, we excuse other sins because of our refusal to be bored. Nothing wrong with a little harmless entertainment, we say. It's just a little fun. What's the big deal? No one's getting hurt. But this has developed, sorry, this has developed in us an entertainment mentality. We value entertainment above all else. The Bible needs to be entertaining. Preaching needs to be funny. Worship music needs to be perfect and the kind that we like. The, the entertainment mentality, I think, has destroyed us in more ways that we know. I can think of these eight things that culture's obsession with entertainment has done to modern people. And very likely, it's done them all, if not a few of them, to us, to you guys, to me in this room. Number one. It's made us consumers. Being, if being entertained is the most important thing in our life, then we become nothing more than people who are looking for the best deal. We become consumers, going to a show or a spectacle. 
The consumer mentality also means that we start to develop a natural criticism of everything that we see. Like a food critic discussing what was good or bad about their meal, we leave events and discuss whether or not it was good or bad, which parts were boring, which parts we thought were done well. In regards to the church, it means that people go to church and then leave, evaluating it often on its entertainment value. This does not just mean whether or not it was interesting or exciting or funny, but also whether or not it moved them. Like this is a prerequisite for church. Now, I do think in some ways it's a prerequisite that church be interesting because I think that God is interesting. However, the fault is not just the person speaking, if it's not. If I just got up here and read the Bible, I would be reading God's word. And there's not much I can do. I could set myself on fire, maybe. It might make it a little bit more interesting. But now it's not God's word that's interesting. It's me setting myself on fire. So it's really important, I think, that we start to develop a sense of responsibility for whether or not we find things interesting. Number two, it has all but removed our imagination. This links well with what Pete was talking about for the last couple of weeks. The way that we should use our imagination to get a better and more coherent idea of God. I teach film and TV here at school, which is essentially, it's just about stories. Movies are just about imagination. And if you have a look at movies, there's a really interesting uh, sort of a picture graph thing that someone put together recently online, which talked about the top grossing movies, the, the biggest movies in the 70s, and then in that same year, but in the 80s, in the 90s, and now, 2012, all the way back. So four lots. And this year, or last year, it was two out of ten movies that were original. Everything else was a remake or a sequel. A lot of remakes. As you can know, you see it all, all the um, superhero movies. Sometimes they just make the same movie twice. They made Hulk twice. They're making Spider-Man. They're starting again with Spider-Man with new actors, but all the same stories, essentially, different bad guys. So there's a real lack, I think, a real lack of imagination. The weird thing is that young people, those that traditionally are meant to have the biggest imagination, they're kind of stumped for ideas these days. Every single one of the stories that my grade 8s do is the same. The very idea of coming up with something for yourself, of imagining it, it seems foreign to some people. And I don't really think that we should be surprised at that. Fifty years ago, a toy was a truck, a little wooden truck, and you'd go outside and you'd move it around in the sand and you'd make all the sound effects and you'd come up with the story, you'd make all the, the voices of the person driving the truck, and now a toy is a screen telling you all of that information so you don't have to do it for yourself. It's actually, I think, in kids that we see the real hunger for entertainment the most and also where we see the real addictive nature of it. Because kids, they just love TV. Number three, entertainment has stunted our concentration. <clears throat> entertainment is a business and businesses are about making money, which means in a competitive industry, whoever can be the most entertaining wins. Movies like Transformers, where giant robots fight each other in cities that are crumbling around them so fast that you can't understand what's going on, are very entertaining, but it's kind of like a sensory overload. What I saw, I saw this interesting documentary on the TV show Lost, which finished a couple of years ago. And in the documentary, one of the creators was discussing their tactics to keep people watching, because it's a business. You have to keep people watching. You have to realise that people that make TV shows don't care about you, they care about money. He said that ad breaks were lethal to programs these days because people change the channel during ads. 
And I, we never, I, we never used to do this at my house. Dad would just press mute. Although we only watched ABC News, and there's no ads there anyway. But the rest of the time, Dad would just press mute, and we'd have to watch the ads in silence and hopefully talk to each other, which was awkward. But but now I know I do it at home. Ad break. I'm changing channels to see if there's anything else interesting on, more interesting than ads, which everything is. Even those ads, you know, for ab rockers and stuff, where there's a little bit more of a narrative going on, is more interesting than no narrative. Okay, so what they realised that they had to do, they had to have a cliffhanger at the end of every segment before they go to an ad. You know, a cliffhanger is like that moment where you're screaming at the TV, what? You can't stop now? Someone's just got shot or something, and I need to know what happened. And they used to only do those moments right at the end of episodes to get you to watch the next one, and now they have to do it at the end of every part of the show before the ad. You'll know it if you watch MasterChef. Yeah? The next person to get evicted is then the fire comes up on the screen and you don't know who it is. And then they show you like the last minute when you go back to it just to get you back into it so you know what's going on. The weird thing is that this pandering that these people are doing, this pandering to our desire to be fed excitement without doing anything, has completely dulled our ability to concentrate. We can't concentrate on one thing for very long at all. Hopefully the negative aspects of this should be pretty obvious. Learning becomes a lot harder. Reading the Bible becomes really difficult. Listening to sermons that go for more than half an hour or even 10 minutes, really difficult. And trust me, as a teacher, it's making kids harder to teach because they just can't sit there and listen anymore. We've got to come up with ways to entertain them. Number four, it's supplanted our discipline. It has uprooted our discipline and it's taken its place. Self-discipline no longer exists. This one connects really well with the third one about concentration. If we lose our ability to concentrate, we also lose our ability to be self-disciplined and force ourselves to concentrate. Because we think, if I have to concentrate, it's not entertaining, so it's not worth knowing. It should just come like fed, like through a tube into me. Self-discipline and the spiritual disciplines, they lose out in, an, in a culture that's obsessed with entertainment. Why would you fast when you can eat fast food? Why would you study the Bible when you can watch the TV? Someone else has probably done it. We'll just listen to them and hopefully they put it into a good movie. Fifthly, and really importantly, it's corrupted our appetites. I think this is one of the most important points that I want to make today. Entertainment has actually transformed our appetites. We want to be happy, that's fine. We're actually designed to be happy, and I'll go on about that later. But it's just that it's not the only thing we're designed for. There's more. Easy entertainment, though, has, con has and continues to corrupt our appetites. We have natural God-given appetites that oversaturation and exposure to ends up corrupting. I mentioned porn before. It's a good example. It's a corruption of a natural desire. Video games are a corruption of a natural appetite for adventure, and so are movies. Now, there's nothing wrong. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with video games and movies. But they do, through constant use, begin to corrupt our appetite. And the appetite becomes the most important thing. Number six, entertainment has warped our theology. Worldly entertainment tricks us into falling in love with the world. And then when the Bible says, don't love the world, we get a little bit confused. And which one do we want to change? Well, we prefer to try to change the Bible. It doesn't really say don't love the world. We make excuses. The Bible is not supposed to be entertaining, not in the base way that movies are entertainment. To be sure, there are feelings that entertainment evokes in us which are similar to some that would be found in God's Word. But it's not just entertainment. It's truth. 
so different. And which do we care more about, entertainment or truth? Second Timothy speaks of a people that do not want to endure sound doctrine. They rather... They actually accumulate for themselves teachers that tell them nice things rather than true things. Obviously, the, the tickling ear thing isn't about literally having someone tickle your ear. It's about wanting to hear nice things, things that you prefer to hear than the truth. Number seven, it's transformed our morality. Things are not judged on whether or not they are morally right or wrong. According to God, their moral worth is decided upon by their entertainment value. Oh, sorry, right or wrong according to God. Their moral worth is actually decided by their entertainment value. And lastly, it's redirected our worship. The most important part of this to realise is that this entertainment obsession is actually self-obsession. When we worship the TV or the Xbox or Brisbane Broncos or Christopher Nolan or MasterChef, we're actually worshipping ourselves. Entertainment ends at us. It doesn't do anything for anybody else. It's completely self-centred. Now, I'm not saying necessarily that watching your favourite show with your spouse is a sin or self-worship, but it could be. Where's God in it and where's your love for other people in it? Now, I want to return just at the end here to, uh, to part five, which was that entertainment obsession has corrupted our appetite. Appetite is a really good way of thinking about the subject. Just imagine, if you're able to still have an imagination, <laughs> just imagine eating McDonald's every day. Now, hopefully a lot of you will be disgusted at the idea, but most likely that's because you've had the privilege of eating real food, and so you know that it's not that nice. Children, however, seem to be thrilled at the idea of eating takeaway every day. And if you've ever watched any of Jamie Oliver's shows, you'll realise that all over the world people actually do eat takeaway every day. Kids love it. And the weird thing that happens is they actually start to hate real food, even real good food, you know, even like roast. I I can't think of anything better than roast, personally, roast and roast veggies. But they hate it. They don't want it. It's almost too colourful for them. See, entertainment stimulates that part of our makeup that wants to be happy, just as takeaway stimulates a, ch- a child's desire for food. However, entertainment gives a passing happiness, a fleeting moment of joy, and most of the time it's actually escapism from what's real. Takeaway is similar. It does bring some degree of fullness, but afterwards it makes us feel sick. But strangely, we begin to crave more of it. Though when we do have more, it actually just makes us more sick. We can't grow strong on takeaway. We need real food. Just like we can't grow strong on entertainment, we need truth. You can see the analogy. See, God created us to be happy. He created us with the capacity and therefore the desire for joy. But joy and happiness are actually different. We don't really know how to be happy. We just know that we want to be happy. So we clutch at straws finding whatever fleeting happiness we can grasp and then becoming obsessed with it because it made us feel good once. Well, maybe it's not that we don't know, but rather we do know and we just don't like it or we don't believe it. We don't want to do the hard yards to get it. The truth is this is not in any way, I don't want this to be an anti-entertainment message. It's not. It's not an anti-pleasure message. Hedonism is an obsession with pleasure. And there's actually a whole branch of Christian theology which talks about Christian hedonism, which kind of discusses the fact that God created you to have pleasure. At his right hands are pleasures forevermore. 
Pleasures exist and are good. Therefore, God meant for them to exist and be good. In C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters, you know I was going to quote Lewis eventually, a demon, uh, the demon Screwtape, he, um, he complains about the fact that pleasures exist at all. He's frustrated when a person, <clears throat> he's frustrated that when a person sins sexually, they inevitably get some kind of pleasure from it. If he had his way, he'd be able to, he'd want to remove the pleasure so they get nothing good. He mentions that the ideal situation would be that a person sins and doesn't get any pleasure, which he actually comments does happen. When someone becomes obsessed with something like a drug or something like that, eventually they have to take it just to survive. It loses its pleasure. He does also mention, though, that demons can't create sins. They have no creative ability. All they can do is twist things that are good things that already exist by convincing people to do things at the wrong times or in excess or not enough. It is only a twisting of good, pleasurable, entertaining things that is actually bad. What this means, of course, is that entertainment and happiness is a good thing as long as it is not the only thing, as long as it is not your main thing. God created you to be happy, that's true, but that does not mean happiness at all costs or happiness all the time. Happiness through entertainment is a really self-centered approach to it. Pete uh, sent me this great quote earlier in the week, and I, I thought it would fit perfectly here. In an ego-centered culture, wants become needs, maybe even duties. The self replaces the soul, and human life degenerates into the clamor of competing autobiographies. People get fascinated with how they feel. In such a culture and in the throes of such fascination, the self exists to be explored, indulged and expressed, but not disciplined or restrained. Self-centered religion, says David Wells, crowds out theology and objective truth. Theology becomes therapy. The biblical interest in righteousness is replaced by a search for happiness, holiness by wholeness, truth by feeling, ethics by feeling good about oneself. The world shrinks to the range of personal circumstances. The community of faith shrinks to a circle of personal friends. The past recedes. The church recedes. The world recedes. All that remains is the self. And Pascal reminds us, remember Blaise Pascal was the guy I quoted right at the start, he reminds us of the truth about where true joy lies. We seek rest in a struggle against some obstacles, and when we have overcome these, rest proves unbearable because of what it produces, the emptiness. Only an infinite and immutable object, that is God himself, can fill this infinite abyss. See, God wants us, he wants to take us out of ourselves. That's where true joy is. If we are obsessed with wanting to be happy and chase after entertainment to achieve it, then mere entertainment is all we will ever get. God wants you to be happy, but he wants you to be holy more. And in heaven, people are happy. Heaven is a happy place because heaven is a holy place, not because there's lots of entertainment. With all the talk of imagination the last few weeks, I don't think I could finish today uh, without reading a passage from Narnia. This, for me, inspired my imagination enough to fully understand this idea of what I'm talking about. When we are obsessed with pleasure for ourselves, we will not get it. Lewis talked in his uh, in his sermon the weight of glory he made this comment here our lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us 
like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what it is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. The truth is that there is an immense joy to be found, and that is the joy that God has created us for. But we'd prefer to sit down and watch TV because it's a little taste. It's a little pretend version of the joy that we're created for. At the end of the Narnia series, Aslan has created a new Narnia or a new earth. And to get to it, people actually need to enter through a stable. Once through, they enter into a paradise like the Garden of Eden. A group of dwarves enter through the stable, but they can't see it. They're walking around in a lush green field, complaining of the dark and the cold inside the stable. Aslan raised his head and shook his mane. Instantly a glorious feast appeared on the dwarf's knees. Pies and tongues and pigeons and... Pigeons and tongues doesn't sound like a glorious feast, but... And trifles and ices, and each dwarf had a goblet of good wine in his right hand. But it wasn't much use. They began eating and drinking greedily enough, but it was clear that they couldn't taste it properly. They thought they were eating and drinking only the sort of things you might find in a stable. One said he was trying to get hay eat hay, and another said he had got a bit of an old turnip, and a third said he'd found a raw cabbage leaf. And they raised the golden goblets of rich red wine to their lips and said, Oh, fancy drinking dirty water out of a trough that a donkey's been at. Never thought we'd come to this. But very soon, every dwarf began suspecting that every other dwarf had found something nicer than he had, and they started grabbing and snatching and went on to quarrelling, till in a few minutes there was a free fight, and all the food, all the good food, were smeared on their faces and clothes or trodden underfoot. But when at last they sat down to nurse their black eyes and their bleeding noses, they all said, Well, at any rate, there's no humbug here. We haven't let anyone take us in. The dwarves are for the dwarves. You see, said Aslan, they will not let us help them. They have chosen instead. They have chosen their cunning instead of belief. Their prison is only in their own minds, yet they are in that prison, and so afraid of being taken in that they cannot be taken out. John Piper said that God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. Please hear me today that I'm not saying that entertainment is a sin. But the entertainment that we have, the entertainment that you can pull out of your pockets right now on your phones, is a very, very new thing. We must not simply accept and do everything that's possible just because it's possible. It's fine to be entertained. But God must be central. Entertainment taken constantly, without discernment, it destroys us in those eight ways that I discussed. It destroys our imagination, our concentration, our discipline, our appetites, our theology, our morality and worship, and it makes us consumers. God's design for you, his aim for you is sanctification. And sanctification will lead to happiness, but sometimes there's unhappiness to get there. Just because something makes you happy doesn't mean that it's a good thing to do. If you want to stand with me, I'll just pray and we'll finish up. God, thank you that you are truth. Thank you that there is a truth and it is, uh, and it can be known to us. I'll just pray for everyone here. The parable of the sower that we referred to at the start talks about Uh, our hearts the soil is our hearts i pray that throughout this week and in coming weeks that you would uh, 
You'd be tending to our hearts and showing us the thorns that are growing and choking your truth, the thorns of entertainment which we spend more time with than we spend with you or even with our spouses. I pray that you would see these thorns and point them out to us, that we would have the, uh, we would have the love for each other that would point out these thorns to each other as well, that would be able to help each other and counsel each other well, and that we'd be able to see with new eyes the way that we approach the world and entertainment, that you would give us wisdom and discernment. Amen. Okay, that's it for today. Thanks very much.